Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Katie Cortese, Kate Gale, Don Frederick, Esther Porter, and Steve Woodward. You will now hear Katie Cortese provide introductions. And welcome to How to Begin After the End, Publishing Prose on Turning Your Manuscript into a Book. I'm Katie Cortese. I'm the assistant editor for Iron Horse Literary Review. I'm the fiction editor, and I teach at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. I'll be this panel's moderator. I'm just going to give a brief introduction and overview of the panel, and then I'll introduce our first panelist. So the reason I wanted to put together this panel and have all of these experts surround me is because I was recently putting together a collection of short, short fiction that will finally be a book in the fall. And before I started that process, I had a very vague idea of how a manuscript turned into a book. My best guide was that old schoolhouse rock number about how a bill becomes a law. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen that skit, if you ever have, but the way that they lay it out is this way. First, you start out with an idea that becomes a sad little scrap of paper. (laughs) After spending a long, long time sitting in committee while a few key congressmen discuss and debate, the luckiest scraps escape the guillotine and progress to the House of Representatives, who cast votes for or against, before sending it to the Senate, which does the same. The final step, of course, is waiting in line at the White House for a signature that turns the best scraps from a bill into a law. As the bill's companion in that skit says, it's not easy to become a law, and it takes a lot of patience and courage to even pursue such a thing. What that three-minute video has in common with writing, submitting, and publishing a book, it seems to me, is the prominence of various gatekeepers who can either forward or stall a book's progress. Editors, agents, publishers. Of course, it goes without saying that the best manuscripts, the ones that become books, must be outstanding works of literature. The rest of the process, though, what goes on in the mind of an editor, an agent, or a publisher as he or she deliberates, that's where the mystery lies for me. Today, we have representatives from each of those groups to speak with you about the process. We'll start by hearing from our freelance editor, Esther Porter, and then hear from our two uh, book publishers back-to-back, Steve Woodward of Grey Wolf and Kate Gale of Red Hen Press, and then we'll close with Don Frederick, the founder of Red Sofa Literary. I'll introduce each panelist before he or she speaks, and then we'll open it up to your questions at the end. So Esther Porter is a founding editor at Revolver and works for the Loft Literary Center, where she critiques manuscripts and writes the Ask Esther column. She received her BA in English Literature and Creative Writing from the University of Minnesota, summa cum laude. She has an extensive literary publishing experience and has taught fiction and poetry writing to children of all ages. After five years working for the Minneapolis-based nonprofit publisher Coffee House Press, she decided to transition into full-time editorial work in October of 2010. She has published four children's books with Capstone Press. Okay. Hi. So that's the stuff I was going to say. Um, so <laughs> thank you for, for being here. It's, it's really neat to have the chance to, to speak with all of you. I look forward to your questions. So I am a freelance editor. Basically, what I do is I, I work with publishers, and I also work directly with authors. So when I work with publishers like like Grey Wolf, I generally work directly with the editor in-house, but I also work directly with authors, and I I really love that work because it ranges from anything from a substantive, really deep edit with the author to just a quick proof before they send it off to their agent or their editor in-house. What I really enjoy doing is working with new authors and helping them figure out how to find their voice, find their skills, give them just uh, simple writing tricks, uh, ways to learn how to, how to tell their story. I love working with older writers who are just starting to write and want to get their memoir written. 
Yeah, and so I work with a wide range of authors, from, from beginning authors to authors who've been published many times. And the stage when an author is looking for an editor varies quite a bit. I mean, often people will send out their manuscript to an agent and the agent will say, well, I would like to represent you, but I need to see this and this and this change in the manuscript. So go find an editor and make those changes. And that's, so that's something that I do as well that really helps authors get their work to a place where they feel they can publish it. Um, yeah, that's about it. I think I'll, I'll just like... Move on to okay. the person. Cool. Great. Well, we'll hear from Steve Woodward next. Um, Steve hails from a Minnesota suburb near a bend of the Upper Mississippi River. He's an associate editor at Gray Wolf Press, where he's worked with writers like Susan Steinberg, Ben Stroud, Justin Hawking, and Craig Davidson. He teaches in the Low Residency MFA program at Sierra Nevada College and is editor and co-founder of Menagerie, an online magazine that focuses on hybrid forms. He holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Michigan, and his own writing has been recognized with a Minnesota State Arts Board grant and with Hopwood Awards in both fiction and nonfiction. He lives in Brickland Park, Minnesota. Thanks, Katie. So, yeah, I'm the associate editor at Gray Wolf, and uh, that means a lot of different things. Uh, I'll try and run through a few of them uh, that might be interesting to you. You know, at Gray Wolf, because we're a nonprofit, because we have a small staff, it means that uh, your job can be pretty flexible and you'll have a wide range of responsibilities at any given time. But you guys are interested in hearing about, you know, manuscripts, specifically probably about acquisitions uh, and what goes on there, and then after that, how an editor works with an author to develop a book. So let me talk a little bit about that. So first, acquisitions. Um, so, you know, a couple, couple different ways that that will work. Um, at Grey Wolf, we do have a lot of uh, partnerships, different kinds of organizations that we work with that run book prizes. Um, a lot of those are for poetry. We also do our Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. We have a partnership with uh, a public space in which we'll publish a couple books from them. And so, so there are a lot of ways that books can come to us through those uh, various outlets. However, of course, the main way that we see manuscripts, and I'm talking here uh, mainly about fiction and nonfiction, uh, which I edit, would be agents, right? So agents send us uh, manuscripts, things that they think that uh, we might like, uh, and we'll look at them and then get back to them about that and have conversations sometimes with the author if it gets that far. So the interesting thing about agents, and, and one of the reasons that they're valuable, is that um, they have relationships with publishers, right? And at a given publishing house, specific agents will have relationships with specific editors. So when you have an agent uh, that's going to represent you, what you're really doing is you're finding someone who knows what someone's taste is like and can serve a little bit as a matchmaker for you. And so they won't send it just to... So if you have an agent that's going to send your work to Grey Wolf, they might send it specifically. Well, I'm going to send it to Steve because he's the one that I know. Um, he's the one that I have the relationship with and he's the one that I think might like this book. Conversely, they might say, well, I know Steve, and I know what his taste is, and I don't think this is going to be a good fit for him, so I might send it to, um, say, Fiona or Katie, right? And so that, there, there is that kind of distinction, uh, that recognition that uh, different editors, even within the same house, have differing tastes uh, and different kinds of things that they're looking for. So that's, that's a little bit about how that process works. Now, when we're strongly interested in a book, what will happen is that one person will decide that they're interested in championing that book and, and want to see if there's a possibility of, of publishing that book. Before that happens, they first have to persuade everyone else that works at Grey Wolf that it is a great idea to publish this book and that we really need it. And so, say, if a manuscript comes in, I'm really excited about it, you know, I'll start that conversation with the agent, and then I will try and get other people at Grey Wolf to read the manuscript. So I'll go to Fiona, and I'll say, I'm really excited about this. This is why it's really great. You know, I want, I want you to read it. And we'll kind of, it, that, that, that process will start to happen. We have editorial meetings uh, every month, and so that's also an opportunity to kind of get everybody in one room and essentially pitch, more or less pitch the manuscript to everybody else. And the interesting thing about that is that you can sort of think of that as um, kind of a dry run at what will happen eventually, which is that the marketing team is going to then take the book and try and persuade reviewers, media outlets, booksellers that this book is worth their time and attention. And so if you're having a hard time doing that just at that stage with the editors, it is a good indication that you might also encounter similar difficulties down the road. 
when you get to the marketing phase. So it's uh, kind of a, a chance to have an open discussion about um, you know, a book and, and whether or not it's a good fit and what its strengths are and what kinds of things we might want to work on. So assuming we get past that stage, we acquire the book, then the real work begins, right? The editor will then work with the author. Esther mentioned that, uh, that she works with us, and um, a lot of the stuff that Esther does as a freelancer will happen after the in-house editor has already been working on the book. So a lot of what the in-house editor does, who, uh, because we're a small press, is often also the acquisitions editor, the acquiring editor. At a large house, those are sometimes separated. A lot of what the in-house editor is going to do is the big picture substantive work, right? So these are the kinds of things that could result in big changes, transformations in the manuscript. You know, if you're looking at a novel, you're going to be paying particularly attention to pacing. You might be asking someone to cut a lot of pages because the book is too long. You might be looking at character development. You're going to be paying attention to the subplots. You're going to be looking at the narrative arc. A lot of things. Sometimes you might even say, this is great, but it would be better in a different tense, <laughs> which I know can be maddening. So sometimes you'll want to discuss, if there is something like that, you'll want to discuss it up front and say, this is our vision for the book. And if your vision for the book aligns with that of the author and you're having that synergy, then you might go forward and send a contract and make an offer for a book. Usually it's a lot of that kind of stuff. Line edits, of course, as well. But at Grey Wolf, we do put the book through several rounds of revision first with the in-house editor and then a couple rounds of copy editing with a freelancer, a couple rounds of proofreading. So it goes through a lot of people, a lot of stages to ensure that the quality is really high. So that's kind of an overview. I'm sure we'll get to talk more about that, but I wanted to give you sort of the broad strokes there. And I will cede the microphone now. Thanks. (laughs) Okay. So now we'll hear from Dr. Kate Gale. Managing editor of Red Hand Press. She's also the editor of the Los Angeles Review and president of the American Composers Forum, LA. She teaches in the Low Res Residency MFA program at the University of Nebraska in poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction. She serves on the boards of A Room of Her Own Foundation, the School of Arts and Humanities of Claremont Graduate University, and Poetry Society of America. Additionally, she is author of five books of poetry, her most recent mating season from Tupelo Press, a novel, Lake of Fire and six librettos. Her current projects include two works of nonfiction, two new poetry collections, and three new librettos. Her articles, poems, and fiction have appeared in Rattle, Georgia Review, Hayden's Ferry, and elsewhere, and she lives in Los Angeles with her husband and children. Well, thank you all for coming here when you could be out having margaritas or something. I don't know (laughs) if they even serve margaritas in Minneapolis, but... uh... So I wanted to say a little bit, I liked everything Steve said, so I'm just going to say what he said differently. I think of also there being steps in editing. And so I'll, I'll do my version of what he was saying about the steps in editing. I like to think of there being six steps. Step one is you in your room editing your work. And, and the first decision of, for you in your room is should you be writing this in the first place? I know you saw your grandmother having sex with the gardener. Should you tell that story while your grandmother's still alive and you're living in her basement? <laughs> so there's that first question of whether you should tell it and then you continue to edit your work. I think of that as step one. Step two is you with your writing community and people who don't have a writing group that they belong to often are part of a writing, an online workshop. UCLA Extension has a huge number and The Loft has a huge number. When I meet people at different places, it seems like a lot of them take one of those to uh, online kinds of courses. But whatever your writing community is, sometimes you have a writing partner, a friend who's reading your work, a group of friends. I think of that as step two. Step three is what uh, Esther's referring to, which is some writing professional looks at your work and, dis- and gives you some advice on whether it's, it's ready to send out into the world. I think that this is a super important step. Sometimes you end up paying someone to do this. Sometimes you might have a writing professional in your life. If you're involved in an MFA program, sometimes one of those folks is willing to do it if you buy them a beer or something. Step four, I think of sort of now you've crossed the line being acquisition editing, and and Steve was talking about that. So that's the person that just decides, I think we should do this. And at Red Hen, we've been publishing, this is our 21st year, we have the same process that he was talking about in the sense that all the acquisition editors at Red Hen sleep in my bed, on my side of the bed. Um, and uh, once we all decide we're in love with a manuscript, we have to take it in to 
the publisher and the marketing people. And the marketing person has pulled up a profile of this person and tells us, you know, this is their online profile. I've looked at former sales. I've pulled their book scan numbers if they have other sales. This is how many copies I think would sell in my infinite 24-year-old wisdom. And then the publisher and the, and the marketing person and I have a discussion. So as Steve's saying, it is not, you know, in the early days of the press, I would just say, let's do this. But now there are three of us in the room making that decision. And then it goes to the next stage, which is developmental editing. And the last stage, you, you know, you kind of spread it out to, to say that there's copy editing and proofreading. I think of that as sort of one last stage where the manuscript is sort of being cleaned and machined, but it is a different step than developmental editing because you're not still moving pieces around. Uh, it's, I consider that sort of the cleanup stage, and I'm not involved with that. I, I do work on the developmental editing. Steve also was mentioning how at, at a publishing company that isn't a New York publisher, a lot of us wear a lot of hats. So, you know, I do the galley drops. I'm leaving for London Book Fair tonight to do the foreign rights in, in London. So I do the foreign rights meetings in London and Frankfurt. And, and Fiona does that at Grey Wolf, too. And she's doing some editing. So we all wear more than one hat. And that comes back to the other thing you were saying, which is in, in terms of prose, which, which can require a lot of time to edit, I really like to get stuff from agents as well because then they do my work for me. And that makes it sound like I'm lazy, but I do a lot of stuff, uh, I think. And so if I get a book from an agent and a lot of the developmental editing has been done, that makes my life easier. I actually, Red Hen publishes 20 to 22 titles a year. I teach at a university uh, in Los Angeles and then at this low residency and, and just do a lot of things. So I can't take on five or six prose books a year that are going to require two years of my time. I, I don't have that much bandwidth. And that's kind of what you were referring to. You know, everybody has a certain amount of bandwidth in terms of what they can do. So I like to get stuff from agents. Every year I take on one or two projects that are going to require six months to a year of my time, and I'm always really excited about those, and I have to be excited to be willing to do that. I also wanted to to say that when you're talking about that group discussion of whether or not you're taking a book, there are a lot of factors. One is, are we in love with the book? Two is whether we think it's going to sell, and not just do we think it's going to sell, but can we sell it? You know, this might be a great cookbook or a great children's book, but that, that isn't something we can sell. So I actually think when writers are sending work out, one of the first questions should be, you know, is this something this publisher has done really well with? Yeah. And, you know, I, I've actually oddly had two conversations in the last week with an author who brought me a book, and I said, this isn't right for Red Hand. I met with the person. And, and usually I don't have time to meet with them, but they were friends of one of my authors, so I felt like I should meet with them. And in both cases, they asked the question you should ask if you actually got to meet or talk with an author, which is, or with an editor, which is, who do you think is right for it? And in both cases, I suggested Finishing Line Press. They're both beginning authors. There's no track record. I think they're only going to sell a couple hundred copies. And I love Finishing Line Press because it publishes some debut authors and does such a good job with it. Both of them said the same thing, which is, well, you know, I'm going to try Grey Wolf. Well, if you just got turned down because your book needed more development and I don't think it's going to sell enough at Red Hand, then you're just going to go to Grey Wolf. That, I'm not saying Grey Wolf is better than us or no, bigger than not. us. They've just been not. around longer than us in 10 years. Trust me, we're going to be stomping all over the little wolf. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, so it's like if a press says your book is not going to sell enough for us, you can't jump to something bigger because it doesn't make any sense. So it is a really good question, though. If you feel this isn't right, what do you think is right? And sometimes the answer that I would give someone is this isn't done yet. You need to work on it for another year. So if you get to ask that question, ask it. You're turning this down. Please tell me 
do you think it's ready and are you guys just the wrong press for it? Are you guys just full? In other words, if you were publishing 40 books a year, would you take it? If you had a huger budget, would you take it? Is this actually right for you or is this book not ready? Okay. If you get to have that conversation, ask that question. Great, and now we'll hear from our final uh, panelist. Don Frederick is the owner and literary agent of uh, Red Sofa Literary based in the Twin Cities. Red Sofa Literary was listed as one of the 101 best websites for writers in 2012 and 2013. Additionally, Don is also a co-founder of the Minnesota Publishing Tweetup and teaches at the Loft Literary Center. Hi, guys. So everyone always asks what an agent does, and now I'm working with Steve, which I'm excited about, but he can also confirm it took, what, three years to make that happen? Yeah. And so people ask me, what does an agent do? Well, you can, it's kind of a, it's a all-encompassing travel partner for your book. So for agents, you know, we are here to advocate on behalf of writers, and if you are going to work with an agent, they should be championing you and not just one book idea, but multiple book ideas. This is someone you want to work with for a while. Agents also are very specific. We're all a little bit quirky. (laughs) So there is no agent that is like another. So that's why there are multiple directories, print and online, that tell you what we're looking for, what we like, what books we've sold, the, the kind of conferences we attend, those things. And the reason they're out there is so that you can find an agent that matches your book. Just to kind of not go on and on about all the things we do, but we not only work with authors in developing their ideas, like I have authors, like once I've sold their book, I will help them develop all future ideas. Um, I have people who send me things through the slush pile, as we call it, or the inbox, and I get about 5,000 to 8,000 queries a year, and I don't get paid to read those. (laughs) And I will maybe choose 5 to 12 books out of that number. Large, large number of queries. Laura at our agency got over 10,000 queries last year. And so if it tells you how how many people want to write, that is confirmation right there. A lot of people want to write. So that's why agents do specialize. Um, uh, They were talking about how agents specialize in categories. And the reason they do that is because that might be a category they read a lot, or it's maybe it's the, they, in, before they became an agent, they just knew a certain topic really well. Uh, Jenny at the agency is a historian, <laughs> so she loves uh, science fiction books with some element of history. Um, so she brings both her professional life and her reading and her writing life to the table as an agent. Those categories represent us. As for after we acquire an author, which uh, we'll maybe meet them through a variety of things like conferences, queries, sometimes references. Occasionally, authors will come to a publishing house and they'll share their book because there's an open submission policy. And then the editor will say, you need to get an agent to deal with the contract. And sometimes agents will come in after the fact to handle their business life. That's happened for us as well. Sometimes I, I've been known to do this. I've created ideas, and then I find someone to do it for me if it's not come to me at that point. So that happens. And then, of course, once I've signed an author, you know, I will take their book, out, their book to the house, but also we go through the edits, and I, I refuse to take out a book until it's ready. So if I have to sit on it for a year, I will. Um, right now I have six projects right now that are in development that are not ready to take out. But when they're ready, I'm, I'm very excited to take them out. So also, I'm, I'm investing the same time into ideas before I take them to editors because it needs to be, I may be able to only take it to the editor one time. And that means I need to make sure it's the best it can be. And then, of course, uh, after it's sold, you know, before this, the, it's sold, of course, sometimes the offer will come in. And then I'll be like, oh, we have an offer. And I will talk to my, uh, my author And we will talk about that process, and I will make sure that my author makes the final decision as to who they want to work with. And then I negotiate the contract, and I make sure they're paid, and I deal with 1099s and all that type A stuff. So I always always say that the agent is the type A person of your writing relationship, and you're the type B. You can have a little fun together on that. So I think that's enough right there. Okay, great. So any questions that you ask, I will repeat them. So they are, I guess, written down for posterity, and then I'll throw it out to the panelists, and they'll converse about it until we're ready for another question. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is ask about multiple genres, if you have questions about multiple genres, because I know somebody asked me yesterday, is it only about fiction? 
and I don't know what in the description suggested that, but I, you know, I know that some of these, these presses do deal with poetry and that maybe Esther has dealt with other kinds of things than, than strictly literary works, you know, novels or, or, or short stories. So please you know, ask whatever questions you have and we'll get as many as we can in. So right here up front. Okay, so that's a sort of three-part question. She's curious about the timeline in terms of sending out a query to an agent, how long to expect an agent to respond by. Also, how to respond to an agent's query, and especially maybe if you're dealing with potentially multiple agents or offers or queries, and also what might be the timeline when that agent takes on a project and begins to talk to an editor before things might start to happen, I guess, on the book front. Okay, we'll start the first one. The, the, we're going to call it the first encounter. When you meet, generally it takes about four to six weeks to answer queries. When Laura got 3,000 queries in a month, uh, it, took her <laughs> it, took, it took her six months to answer those because of the large volume of queries that came in. So I would say four to six on a good day is average. I can tell you that I'm usually taking projects out. Most of us, I mean, we'll take out projects year-round, but the busier times to take out projects are September through December and January through, like, the end of May. So if you're querying me in the middle of March or April, like now, I am really behind. So it may be a little bit longer than four to six weeks. Uh, some of us that get, have been around for a while, like myself, if you ignore our categories, some of them will just not respond at all. Um, so that's why we have categories. We'll try to answer if we can, but if we do answer, uh, the big thing is just to, if it's, we might have to use a generic rejection if it's not the best query letter, which would be about 85 to 90% of most queries are pretty bad in query letter land. A lot of people will write a good book, but they don't write a good query letter. And so then at that point, we will ask for materials. So every agent has their submission guidelines on their website, and I'm going to tell you, please repeat to yourself, follow the submission guidelines. So I can go as extreme as you want. I've had people uh, mail me like manuscripts without asking. I've had people show up at my home. I've had people query me in restaurants, bathrooms, you name it. I've heard it. I've had it all. I've had people call me. I've had people pitch to me over Facebook. Like, it's really every boundary has almost been crossed. So despite the fact that I have submission guidelines, which says to just send me a query letter and I'll respond in four to six weeks. So that's the first thing. Once we're interested, I usually will tell someone. I, I was actually talking to Eric Smith, my author, who's here in town. He's now an agent, and so I was like, do you do the full manuscript or a partial or what? He goes, I go for the full manuscript, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I only asked for 50 pages. So every agent will say, I want the first 50 pages, the first 100, the first three chapters, the first, you know, the full manuscript or whatever, and you need to have that ready. There's nothing more discouraging than asking for materials, and then nothing shows up. And I actually had someone send me a query, like the materials for a query, that I requested three years ago, and I had no idea what she was talking about when it showed up in my home. So um, it's really important that you, you're, you're ready for me when that time comes. And then once I've requested, like if it's a partial, I usually will read that in four to six weeks. And then if I want to see more, I will ask for more. I recently just sold a book. It was uh, this week. It's a young adult novel where I actually requested the person's manuscript in May of last year. I put it on my tablet, and I forgot about it. So I got a little bit caught up in the summer. I just kind of forgot. So I was on an airplane to the Writer's Digest Conference in New York, and I saw it on my tablet, and I was like, oh, I need to start reading this. This is a little bit old. And I realized that it was amazing, and it, she had waited, unfortunately, three months and never checked in with me about that book. So on the airplane, I did request the rest of her manuscript. So sometimes, like, if it's okay, like, after six weeks, after we've requested something, to say, you know, hey, like, What's going on? How are you doing? Do you have any questions? Because we would do the same with an editor. Like, how's it going? Do you have any questions? So, and then um, once we do offer to represent you, that was the third part, right? Okay. You get the call, as I call that. It's the magic call. Usually you're going to know, it's kind of like what editors do with agents. Uh, we'll ask you some questions by email. I do that. 
I'll be like, could you give me a competitive analysis of your book if you haven't provided that already? Or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'll start asking questions. You should know at this point I'm like a cat. I'm coming at you. I'm, a, I'm circling you, and I have some questions. That means I'm showing some interest. And at that point, I will ask to speak to you, and I will schedule a call. And that means I'm genuinely interested in learning who you are. Because uh, as an agent, every agent's a little bit different, but I have a policy no drama queens are going to be my authors. So I, I actually have to meet you on the phone. I need to get an idea of your communication style. I want to get a communication of what, what else you're working on. I want to know who you are. Because I'm going to be working with you for a while as far as I'm concerned. So it's, I, 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 wanted to, I want us to be on a good foundation. So once that happens, then contract rolls out, and then we start forward from there. Great. Yes, sir. Okay, so he's curious about if you're interested in getting an agent to work with a small press, should you preface that in your cover letter somehow or, you know, indicate that when you're querying? I don't think that's necessary. I mean, honestly, every agent, once again, is different. Steve and, and Kate have probably met them, but there's some agents who will only work with the big publishers, and there's some agents like me who will work with any publisher if I feel like they're going to treat my author well and their royalties are going to be good and I feel like the marketing is going to be good and it's just going to be an overall good experience. Honestly, if you're going to an agent and they know that category, they already know where they're going to want to take it if they like your idea. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the question is for poets. How much of what has been discussed so far pertains to works of poetry? Well, I would say that I first of all like the idea that the best query letter is the one you don't have to write. And so, you know, one of the things you're hearing here is that Editors and agents get huge numbers of submissions. Many of them are not really ready to be published. So to me, um, whether it's an, an editor or an agent, and certainly with a poetry manuscript, I always encourage writers to go where that person is that you want to meet. I and mean, this is why people go to Squaw Valley and you know different conferences so that they can meet with somebody. And if you can't go to some place like that, then get access to someone that is in their world. So, I mean, if, if you looked at Grey Wolf's list or Red Hen's list or Coffee House's list, if you feel like your book belongs there, then there should be some writer that they publish, somebody that they that's written blurbs for them, somebody in their world that you could access. You could go to their reading and get to know them and say could you see if this editor would look at my work? And, and you're still writing a query letter as a poet. Um, I want to know if you're going to get out there and sell the book, and I'm totally with you. I really, really want to know if you're going to be an asshole. <laughs> because the, the fact is that, you know, there's usually each season one author that sucks 90% of the staff time and you try to avoid that person with a little psychological counseling up front. So with your query letter, you can say a lot about what you're going to do to get out there and sell the book and, and, and so on. But I really think if you could get to a place where you meet the editor or agent or someone they know is willing to refer you. I mean, whenever I talk with agents about who they've taken on, it's, I'm amazed how much of this got referred to them. And I wanted to just riff back on one other thing that someone asked earlier. I think that when I was first in publishing, my feeling was that Red Hen didn't want to deal with agents because they would want big advances and we weren't paying big advances. And now, as I say, we deal with a lot of them. And they know enough about us when they're submitting. We just took a book from Melanie Jackson, who is a big agent in New York. Um, she's married to Thomas Pynchon. When I go to her house, I look for Tom, but I haven't spotted him. <laughs> and if I do, don't worry, I've got my phone. But... When I was first taking a book for, from her, I was just sort of shocked that, I, that Red Hen was even talking with her. But the fact is that a lot of the big agents, even if they're dealing with a small press, they have a lot of great ideas, or you know, any kind of agents, they have a lot of great ideas for promoting the book. And that makes the whole experience better. 
And so when I'm working back and forth with an agented book, I feel like I've just raised the bar in terms of what could be done promotion-wise. Yeah, I just want to kind of tag on to that. So the thing to know as well as a writer is that it's not just about how can I get my manuscript into someone's hands. It's also how can I make myself visible to the editors? Uh, and, And that really is about being part of a literary community, right? You know, we don't, at Grey Wolf, we like to think of ourselves as working with authors, right? Not just taking on a book and publishing that book, end of story, but in trying to find writers that we're interested in uh, having a longer relationship with and seeing where they go. You know, what are they going to write for their second book? Uh, what's, what's the third book going to be like? Um, so we're, we're interested in that. And so we, we want to see that someone is already taking part in the broader conversation around them, right? I know I talked a little bit about agents before, but editors don't just sit back and wait for agents to send things to them. We're actively engaged in looking for things that we're interested in, right? We also are trying to reverse that dynamic a little bit, not just sit back and say, oh, well, somebody, somebody might send me something that I might like, but to go out and find the things that you do like yourself and to actively pursue them. So that means also going to a lot of writers' conferences. It means going to uh, readings. It means paying a lot of attention to various kinds of awards uh, and grants that are giving to, given to emerging writers uh, to support that work that goes into uh, those manuscripts as, as they become, uh, as they're on their way to becoming books. Uh, it means uh, reading a lot of literary magazines and journals and seeing who's publishing what, where, uh, and trying to find things that you're interested in. I, you know, solicit people all the time where I send out emails and say, Hey, I've been following you for a little while. And of course they don't know that. Right. But I see a piece that's interesting and I, I'll watch and I'll see you wait to see what other kinds of things they're going to publish. And you know, when it seems like someone's reached a certain level of consistency and that they might have something that is far enough along that, that I might be interested in, I'll send them an email and say, Hey, I've been reading your stuff here, here, and here. I think it's really great. What are you working on? And start that conversation. And, of course, that can feel like that it can come out of nowhere, right, to the writer. But it really doesn't, right? It's it's a result of the work that you've been doing to be a part of a community, to be visible, to make yourself a part of something that the editor can see, right? In other words, you're already building your audience before, in some cases, you've finished the manuscript that that will become a book. So all those things are really important to know, right? Because, because we're out there. We're in that community as well. We view ourselves as being an extension of that community that writers who are also readers and part of our audience are making. We're part of that continuum. So we, we don't see, we don't like to think of ourselves as gatekeepers or think of there, there being a big wall or a solid divide because we're, we're part of that conversation. And a lot of times too, when somebody sends us something that isn't working, that we're not going to take on, we'll give them feedback and we'll say, these are the things that didn't work for us. Um, but we see the potential here. And if you're interested in revising, the door is open, you know, come back later, you know, after you've been working on this. And so a lot of times the conversation will take place over a longer period of time. And it also happens that those conversations can be beneficial to authors and then they'll end up selling their book elsewhere, which is fine because, Again, at Grey Wolf, we're a mission-driven publisher. We're a literary nonprofit. We understand that it's important to be part of that conversation regardless of where the work ends up. I just met somebody yesterday. I ran into somebody that I met at one of these AWP conferences, subsequently looked at the manuscript and said, well, you know, it, it doesn't quite work for me. Here are some thoughts. And he came up to me and said, hey, I really appreciate the feedback. I had not heard from this person in a, you know, in a, a year, whenever it was that uh, we last corresponded. I really appreciated your feedback. It really helped me in revision. I just sold the book to uh, Nebraska. And fantastic. You know, I'm, exci- I'm excited for that. I, I, it's important for us to be part of that conversation and to give people real feedback so that they understand you know, what's working, what's not working for us specifically. And so be thinking about that as well, not just how can I get my book, my manuscript into someone's hands, but how can I be a part of that conversation? How can I be a part of a literary community in a way that's going to make me visible to an editor, in a way that's going to make me want to seek them out? And I should also say the question that started us on this whole thing was about whether or not it applies to poets. You know, at a publisher, everybody's involved in everything, right? I don't edit the poetry, but when I see something that's interesting, I send an email to our poetry editor and I say, look at this, I think it's cool. And he takes things on occasionally that I've brought to his attention. So, you know, it's not just, oh, that person only edits this, therefore I shouldn't even talk to them. Everybody's involved in that. And so I try to encourage authors not to box themselves in and put themselves in a category and say, oh, well, that only applies to me if I'm a certain kind of writer 
you know, but there's something of value to be part of the conversation across genres as well. Yeah, I just wanted to add something to that. I absolutely agree that you want to be in the game. You want to be in the, in, in the zone so that I would have heard of something you've done because you're writing stuff. You, you're, you, you know, and I always think that the easiest place to jump in is, is writing reviews. There's lots of literary magazines here. If you went around to three of them and said, could I volunteer to write a review once in a while, I'm sure somebody would take you on. So starting with writing reviews and then writing essays is a way to sort of get your voice out there. I also just wanted to riff back to something we were saying earlier about, you know, you and I were saying about being easy to get along with. I really don't think it's important when you're meeting with an editor or an agent to immediately try to create connective tissue between the two of you the way you would if you were trying to make friends. Of the, you know, several hundred people that Red Hen has published in in 20 years, I, I think I've got a half a dozen friends that are just dear to me that come to my house and I know their kids and they know my kids. I don't need more friends. I really don't. What I need is when I'm taking on an author is someone that's going to be easy to work with. And I think that, you know, people make mistakes around that because so much of this feels relationship based, this whole world, here we are at AWP, it feels very relationship based. Like you're friends with that person, that's how it's happening for you. But I really think if you're writing something good and your stuff is out there in the world being recognized in a way that I know you can sell your your book and you're easy to get along with. You don't have to like the things I like, God forbid. And, you know, we don't have to want to go on vacation. You don't have to like my kids or whatever. On the other hand, just being easy to get along with is great. It's funny because I came by the booth and there were a couple people that were, you know, wanted to submit a manuscript to Red Hand and they were being rude to two of the people at my booth. My husband just had open heart surgery, so I brought my son and daughter. So this is my son and daughter you're being rude to. You're at the booth, and you'd like to submit a manuscript. So, you know, you should be always really nice to everybody at the press. (laughs) You know, as Steve says, we all know each other. You know, so even if it's not my son and daughter, it's like, yeah, there's 10 of us here. We all know each other really well. I was going to say that too, the, the idea of, of writing book reviews. That has actually been really good for a lot of writers at, at Coffeehouse Press. Being a part of the conversation and showing the editors that, the, that, yes, I do read a lot, and I read your books, and I have things to say about them, and it is part of my thought process, my writing process, and to start to be a part of that conversation. At Coffeehouse, I was actually on the publicity side, and to go along with what what you said about you need to be nice to everybody because on the marketing side, I mean, there's only so much time in a day, and you have to, as as a marketer or a publicist, you have to give and take, decide how much you're going to focus on this title or that title, so being kind to the marketing director and the publicist is really, really important too. (laughs) So to remember that. And also, I mean, if you are reviewing books, the publicist is going to be reading through a lot of those, a lot of those reviews and pulling, pulling blurbs and everything. So, so the publicists and the marketers are going to be paying attention to who's reviewing the books at that publishing house as well. So that's, that's another avenue for getting into the community at the publishing house. Okay. Yes, sir. In the blue. Yeah. Okay. So um, he's asking about the line between a manuscript that is really good and is going to, you know, go on to be a project that may be sent out to potentially be a book and a manuscript that might be really good but doesn't make the cut and is rejected anyway. So... Well, I would say in agent land, it comes down once again to how good is your writing and how good is your idea. Sometimes we can see potential in ideas, but the writing is just not there yet. And where Esther referred to like having the developmental editor, it depends on how hungry that agent is for your idea. So at a previous panel, I mentioned where I turned down a book idea just recently because the book was written in vignettes, and I hate vignettes. And it turns out that one of my editor friends is in the, uh, is in, uh, the same office as someone who acquired that book of vignettes on this incredible topic. And she's going to let me know if it's still in vignettes. But I turned it down because I just I asked for an R&R. 
So now I'm going to be very sad because this book is going into the world and I could have had it, but I turned it down. So that's where agents talk about the books that got away or the editors talk about the book that got away. But sometimes you'll see potential in that idea, and this has happened because I look at the idea, I look at the writer, I look at the community that writers participating. Like, are they active with uh, their community? Are they out in the community and engaging other writers? And also, I know the market. That's my job, to know the market. So at that point, I'm going to be looking at the big package. So maybe the writing's not ready, but I'm going to offer to represent them, and then we'll set a guideline, maybe six months, a year, whatever, to get the book ready so I can take it out. But, you know, with my panel a few days ago, we went from 120,000 words to 80,000 between me taking him on and then me selling the book. So 40,000 words had to be cut with multiple editors. So I think at the same time you have to think about, as an agent, not necessarily the editor, when I'm looking at an idea, I'm looking at the timeliness, the writing, and the author to determine if I'm going to want to represent that person and take it to the editors. I would say that, um, you know, Steve, I guess, and I have both riffed on the idea of, like, how much bandwidth you have. So Mm -hmm. if if someone asks me to do a writing project at the beginning of the summer, or or, uh, sorry, they they send me a writing project that's going to take a lot of editing and it's the beginning of the summer, I'm much more likely to say yes. I don't teach in the summer. And I love taking manuscripts with me on my, you know, vacations and and working on them. If they send it to me in November, I just... I, like I'm just sort of shaking by that time, and so, so, so one of one thing is timing. I think it's good to find out when do you have s- some time and space to think about something. For me, also, once you go into the editing process, you don't know what you're going to get on the other side. So for me, part of deciding to work on something that's going to take a long time is: Am I in love? It's like you know, you can meet a, a guy that's kind of a fixer-upper, and if if he's really cute and he's so great in the sack, it's worth rolling up your sleeves. <laughs> but if he doesn't have all those attributes, it might just be a lot of work and, you know, he's still wearing fanny packs at the end. So they're I th- coming back. They're coming back, yeah. are they? Okay. So <laughs> my ex-husband wore fanny packs. He's an ex-husband now. But... <laughs> So, I mean, an example is I took on a book on fetal alcohol syndrome and adoption, a memoir about a woman who adopted a a Russian kid. I I, I mean, I have kids. I loved this book. It was a huge amount of work, but I was excited about it. I don't know if I would have had the same excitement for a book that was just way outside my level of interest. Yeah, I, I would also say, I mean, everybody draws that line at a different place, right? And if you're trying to figure out, well, how do I know if my book is ready to submit, if that's part of the question, you, need, you mean, really need to have a lot of other people's eyes on that. Don't do it yourself, right? Um, get some feedback. Figure it out. Um, because, pe- you know, if you have uh, other writers, right, uh, or people that you trust to look at the manuscript, then they can help you make that determination. This is what I tell people that you want to make sure that you're at a place that you're happy with it, that you're not going to second, you're, you're not going to second guess yourself later, right? If you're sending something out and you kind of feel like, oh, but I'm still revising it and I might send him an email in a month and say, oh, I want to give you a different version, it's too early. And people do this all the time. Yeah, so wait until you've gone as far with it as you can, right? And that way you're protecting yourself a little bit so that you know when someone responds to it, you can have a feeling of like, okay, that's clearly not the right person for my book. Their response is wrong to it. I think I'm right. I'm going to stick to my guns, right? Or you can know, oh, that's a really smart comment and I might need to rethink some things. But if you haven't already taken it to that point where you're confident that you've done as much as you can, then you're not, you're going to have this kind of indecisiveness, this kind of feeling of, well, I, I don't know. Maybe they are right. Maybe they're not. I'm not sure. And you want to make sure that you know for yourself that the book is in the shape that you want it to be in before you send it. So if you're thinking about that kind of determination, try and answer those questions for yourself first, and that way you, you can go into the process with a lot more confidence. You'll be able to respond to people and really know the answers to some of those questions up front because you've thought about them, right? You, all of the decisions that you've made in terms of craft are informed decisions so that when someone says, well, you know, you've written in third person, it should be in first. You can say, no, it should be 
in third, and here's why. If you haven't thought about those kinds of things, if you're just sort of writing it because this is the way it came to you and you're acting on default, then you're going to have a lot more trouble when it, when it comes to that process because you, you haven't thought about it, right? And you want to make sure that all of those things are choices, that, that you're in control of what you've done on the page, in other words. And that's, that's how a, a writer's group or a workshop is really, really important because if you haven't been interrogated about your choices, you haven't thought about the questions that you need to answer, then you really, you'll be in that wishy-washy place. But if you've already been interrogated about your work and you've, you've made those choices and you've, you have those answers, you'll be equipped. You'll have that toolkit to answer questions from an editor or an agent. Okay, that's a great question about where to find lists of reputable agents and publishers online. So uh, the writersdigest.com website is amazing, and there's the Writers Digest guide. They actually have the big monster, the big mama of all directories, but they also have one broken down for children's young adult and children's, and then one, they actually have a directory of agents. With these guides, you can also buy them um, online, or you can get print and online access. You can get both as a package deal. Jeff Herman has a great guide. He just updated the, his guide to um, editors, publishers, and literary agents. This newest version took us about an hour or two just to get it finalized. For him, it was a lot of questions. He was pretty thorough. Um, I'm actually a big fan of social media. I cannot preach this enough. Twitter, you should be on Twitter. A lot of us in the publishing world use Twitter to just, I don't know, it's a good way to engage people because you can, we, a lot of publishing people hang out on there, but there's a hashtag, it's pound sign MSWL, that means manuscript wish list. It is amazing, that's all I have to say. They have like two days of the year where like editors, editors and agents get on there and they talk about the things that they're dreaming of. And we just ramble incessantly. So, like, Laura wanted a poker player, young adult novel. Or, some, no, it's a pool player, young adult novel. And she got on there and she found them after she posted it on there because they were following that hashtag. That hashtag actually goes into another website. And then my friend Jessica Sinsheimer, she actually started a website for the agents and editors as well with manuscript wish lists in mind as well. If you use Twitter, there's the hashtag for YA Lit, there's one for Kid Lit, there's one for NA Lit as a new adult, there's one for every category known to man. Just feel free to check it out. Also, I mean, there's, there's contests online, and we all, you know, whether it's a magazine or publishers, like I know like Alloy and Open Road and multiple places will do open submissions as well, and you can, you can even turn in your writing to them as well sometimes. But I feel like... The print and online guides are great. Twitter is great. And also, if you like a writer, you know it's really probably a good idea to go to their website and see who represents them and who their publishing house is. <laughs> Buy their books. That's even better. And then you look in the acknowledgments, and you actually can see who they're – they'll say thank you to their editor and thank you to their agent. So if you feel like you write like Andrew Smith and you are the next Andrew Smith – then see who his agent is. He's probably talked about that agent in the acknowledgments. He's probably referring to the agent on his website. He's probably talking to his agent on Twitter. So, you know, that's where you can get an idea of what publishing houses are good for your book, what agents are good for you, and what editors. I would say that I think of CLMP's online website as the place that I go to because I only think in two worlds, and you touched the one of them. One is if you're sending out a poem or short story or an essay, you just send it out widely. I'm not sending to the Georgia Review because I ran into them at AWP. You send it to a bunch of different places. But in terms of a book, I just think exactly like you were saying at the end. What's the list of ten authors who are writing a book like the one I'm writing? I'm going to access their people. Writer's Digest or, or the Jeff Herman book are nice reference guides. I like having the Jeff Herman guide as a sort of reference guide just to make sure that nothing's changed at that agency right. or house. But in terms of making the list of where I would be sending it, it's from the bookshelf. It's like when someone says to me, I have a children's book, it's like you should be hanging out at the children's section and you've got a list of books and you, that's how you're making your list. Yeah, and not only just reading the books of the, of the authors you're interested in, find out who the, your favorite authors are reading. Yeah. 
Who's influencing your favorite authors? I mean, your reading list will be endless and overwhelming, but that's a great way to go. If you're looking for a freelance editor, a really great resource is the Editorial Freelancers Association, EFA. They're here. They have a table. They're wonderful. They have guides on, you know, editors of all sorts, what their specialties are, what their interests are. That's a great one. There's also, I mean, like, you'll go to, like, bookediting.com. There are tons of them. Be careful, though. There are plenty of terrible freelance editors out there who want your money. (laughs) So be careful. Find out about their background. Find out about who they've worked with. Be really careful when you hire a freelance editor. We can probably take one more. Yes, ma'am? Okay, so it's a copyright sort of concern. We may use your idea, yeah, right, but not use... Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just Alloy. So Alloy actually, well, they actually developed, if my memory serves me correctly, because I have, a little, my brain's a little bit tired now, but they developed the Vampire Diaries Gossip Girl. I don't know if you've heard of those. You probably have. And Pretty Little Liars. If you watch bad TV like I do, you have seen it. So, I mean... I feel like, and I know some of the people that work there, and I consider them up stand like they're good people, but they also told me how they'll come up with ideas in-house as well, and they'll actually hire writers that have submitted through their open house to write for them for those series. So, for example, the woman who was writing for The Vampire Diaries, uh, she didn't want to take their direction anymore, so she left and they hired someone else, and then she created her other TV show, which has also got its own spinoff book now. Um, so... She seems like she landed okay, but if you're worried about your idea being stolen, I can't speak for the rest of everyone here, but I can tell you right now, since pot got legalized, I've received about 45 to 50 queries about the legalization of marijuana. Everybody has some kind of perception on it. And even in the early days of children's book publishing, going back to Ursula Nordstrom, a lot of similar ideas would come up at the same time. I think it's just that's what happens. We're in a culture where we all are around each other, especially in this Internet culture. We are discussing ideas. When we talk about copyright and and stealing ideas, I can't speak for anyone else here, but I wouldn't even have time to steal an idea, even if I wanted to. I I can barely answer my emails. So I feel like... Really what it comes down to is that if you have a really great idea, if you don't want to, you, you, it's good that you read the fine print. That makes you, that's awesome. People, some people don't read the, the fine print. But at the same time, this is where you as a writer have an option of choosing where you want to take your idea. And you should be able to ask those questions. And that's where you ask those questions. That's where agents ask those questions. That's where editors ask those questions. And um, I'm, I, I'm doubting they would even try to pull that stunt. I would hope they don't. But that's where, you know, if that comes up, there are people like the Authors Guild who would step up and help you if you needed that. Yeah, I would say a couple of things. One is that I also don't believe that you should be sitting around at all worrying about people stealing your ideas. And, and in a way, this riffs back to the idea of timeline. You know, from the time that an agent takes a book until the time it's in print, it can be three to five years. You should be out there writing another book. You know, if you if you have an idea that you think is really precious, you should you should try to do something with it. But you shouldn't be worrying about someone stealing it. First of all, the Kate Gale idea is few future Kate is always going to have more ideas. Okay. So just, you know, you're sitting by the well of, and the well is your own imagination. If you have an idea that's really, really important to you, sure. You could figure out ways of copywriting it and everything, but you should be sitting in the well of your imagination, creating more ideas while that book is out there waiting for an agent working on the next project that you're extremely excited about. And I don't believe for a minute, this is, we're not even in a world that's really all that monetized. You know, if you really wanted to make money, you should have invented something technologically. Okay. There's a Northern area. When people talk to me about, Oh, I want to make money in publishing. I think I say, there's a Northern area of, of California. Go there. That's where the money is. Silicon Valley, you know, but I think that if you have an idea that's precious to you, there are definitely ways to copyright it, but keep writing. I just want to jump in here before I, I agree with Kate. I don't think that you should really be that worried about it because you're the only one that can tell your story. 
right? A lot of people can have the same idea, but everybody's going to tell it a different way, right? Everybody's going to write it a different way. Everyone's sentences are different. Everyone's voice is unique, right? Um, and so that's what people are really going to be interested in. It's not just the idea, right? It's the writer. It's how it's being told. It's the sentences on the page, right? It's the writer's voice. Those are the things that are compelling, uh, at least from where, from where I stand, right? Yes, I'm interested in ideas, but a good idea can be executed in a horrible way. And an idea that maybe doesn't seem quite as brilliant can be done in a way that is brilliant, right? Or, or I should say not an idea that doesn't feel brilliant. I should say that an idea or a subject that's been written about a lot can still be done in a way that feels new and surprising, right? And so, yeah, you know, you want, you want to make sure that you're trying to write about something original, but you want to make sure that it's done in a way that reflects you and your personality. And that's something that can't be duplicated or imitated, right? Uh, and so because of that, I don't think that you should be unduly worried about someone stealing your ideas. Okay, so there's just about eight minutes left or so, and my last question for the panel is, I wonder if there is any advice that can fit in a little soundbite, sort of, about like a, the last manuscript you saw that you loved, why you took it, what you loved about it. I fell in love with a book that we're doing this fall called 52 Men. It's by Louise Wareham. And I'm really interested in, we just, we're, we have this book this spring by Chris Terry called How to Carry Bigfoot Home that's about, you know, men who are pussies. And I really love this subject because I'm sort of interested in, in the evolution of manhood in America. And so this 52 Men is looking at the same subject from a woman's point of view. And both books are really quirky and funny. And I'm kind of, I said that I really just wanted to publish dark, dark, disturbing books, but I was kidding, I guess, because now I'm much more interested in someone that can take something dark and disturbing and do it in an interesting way like Ron Carlson does. And so both of them are writing really well and they're getting out there and creating a platform for their books and they're energetic and exciting. Chris Terry's a jazz musician. Louise Wareham is just out there doing stuff and her brother Dean Wareham is a musician too. So if, if, if you are energetic and exciting about what you're doing, it's much more likely that you could get an editor or an agent excited. Uh, if you're half-assed about it, then uh, that's not going to work as well. I'm going to talk about a book that uh, has just come out. So this was the uh, last winner of our nonfiction prize. Her name is Margaret Lazarus Dean, and I worked with her on that book. And the thing that I loved about that is that it was, um, for me, such a great example of an author making really smart choices about their subject, Right. Um, so the book is called Leaving Orbit, and it's about uh, the final days of the uh, NASA's space shuttle program. She went to the last uh, three shuttle flights and wrote about it. Um, and she writes about it in a way that um, thinks about the other writers that have written about the space program, particularly some of the new journalist authors like Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer. And she engages with it in a way that, that says, essentially, well, Mailer would, maybe wouldn't have even accepted me as a writer because I'm a woman and she understands that. And so here she is, she sees herself on the receiving end of a tradition. She understands that she talks about it. And as a writer, as a person who she is, it reflects not just her interests, but her identity. And she's perfectly positioned to tell that story. And so you can think about yourself as a writer. What is the story that I'm perfectly positioned to tell? What is it that I have that's unique that nobody else has? Um, and she, she had, she talks about this in the book. She had a realization in the moment you know, her, she'd written her first novel, which was a uh, coming-of-age novel about uh, a young girl that grew up uh, right around the time of the Challenger space shuttle disaster. She was fully invested. She was already going to these things, and she thought, someone's got to write about it. And then she realized, oh, oh I'm, I'm the one. I have to write about it. So figure that out for yourself. What is the thing that you have to write about? What is the story that you have to tell? Because that is absolutely contagious on the page, right? And when someone encounters that, they will see it, and they will fall in love with it because they know this is the person that needs to be the one to tell this story, right? And that's, you know, for, for Margaret, that was absolutely what I con connected with. Am I interested in space as a subject? Yes, right? It, was, I, was I predisposed to like the book? Yes. But someone else could have done it in a way that I would have said, well, that's not, that doesn't feel necessary to me. But her book felt absolutely necessary. And part of that is because of the choices that she'd made as a writer and the way that she'd positioned herself. It was a story that she had to tell, and so she told it. So. 
I'm taking this a whole other direction. So I have a weird sense of humor. That's not evident already. So I actually have been dreaming of a choose-your-own-adventure novel for adults for 10 years. So finally someone came to me with a series called Choose Your Own Misery, and the first installment was The Office. And so, <laughs> so they know that I like really funny humor like McSweeney's and The Onion and anything that just makes me giggle when I read. So that was actually, you know, for me, that's something I recently sold a three-book deal to a, a wonderful independent publisher for them. And so we'll basically have three books come out over three years with these choose-your-own-adventures for adults. And so I feel like... For me, what, I, what won me over is they could make me laugh, kind of forgot about time. They made me appreciate the corporate office life, which is sometimes a little bit messed up, as we all know. Um, and at the same time, they could write really well, and they both have noticeable platforms. So I, you know, I feel like sometimes when we read, we read to escape. So I think when you are writing a book, you need to also think about who your audience is. Don't forget about the audience. Write the book you love, but don't forget about your audience because when they pick up your book, they are escaping their own reality long enough to enter the world you've created, whatever that may be. And that is quite the honor when someone you know, puts their time into your world. So always remember who your audience is, but also write the book you love. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.